affecting not just the way we think, but our emotions, our state of mind, how we feel inside. So, this is a platform about the presidential election, and it is also not a platform about the presidential election. Not at all. I'm speaking today about the moral declaration at the request of Reverend Dr. William Barber. Some of you know that name partly because I keep bringing him up here. I'm a little bit smitten. Um, but he is the uh, leader of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina and has taken on really a national role um, along with several other clergy people. He's um, joined by Tracy Blackman um, of the United Church of Christ and by James Forbes, who was the minister at Riverside Church in New York for many years. And um, together they have created, along with, um, they're so, they, they, they've done these revivals all throughout um, the country, including one in D.C., which some of you attended with me. And um, along with the, to the revivals, they bring these amazing preachers, these amazing speakers. And then they also have on staff at all times an ethnomusicologist. You know, she has, she's an unbelievable performer, but also, un, you know, who understands music really deeply and talks about the importance of the role of music in justice movements. I remember at the revival, um, Dr. Barber saying, you know, so you always have to have like a full-time ethnomusicologist on staff if you're going to do justice work. And I thought... Well, that sounds great. Sure, I'm gonna, I'll wrap that into next year's budget. We're going to have full time. Um, so they've been doing these revivals together, working on what they call a moral declaration. And you might have seen some of that, whether you attended the revival here in D.C. or you've read and signed the declaration online, which I encourage you to do. Or perhaps you have seen Dr. Barber's speech. You can um, find different segments of him speaking um, both on a national stage at the DNC and then more recently um, in Charlotte um, when Charlotte was in the midst of uprising. He um, really spoke. He's president of the NAACP in North Carolina. Um, so you can read about, about it and hear Dr. Barber and his incredible um, passionate rhetoric as well um, on your own. The idea of the moral declaration is... Um, comes out of this sort of sense that the religious right um, took the idea of morality and hijacked it for a very narrow set of purposes. And Reverend Dr. Barber wanted to take back that concept of what it is to be moral and, um, and to talk about it in many more broad ways. So the Moral Declaration talks about um, health care, it talks about income inequality, it talks about mass incarceration, and the list goes on and on. Now, I think the, the idea of having congregations speak about the moral declaration is to try to bring people on board with the values held in that declaration. And I suspect that at West, I am mostly preaching to the choir, or in West speak, speaking to the chorus. And yet I think there are still pieces in there that are important for us to think about and take to heart. There are a couple of things, in fact, about Barber's work that I want us to learn here that I think is important at this moment as we head into the presidential election and all the other elections that will happen on Tuesday. 
Barber imagined these weekends as an exhortation to vote and to vote for the values that the Moral Declaration calls for. I do hope that you vote, which I'll say more about later, the context of voting. But there are pieces that far transcend any election, it seems to me. The first is the way that Dr. Barber has gone about his work on the Moral Declaration, his work on these revivals around the country, the Moral Day of Action on September 12th, which several of you participated in as well with me, and sort of what it looks like, what kind of coalition he's brought together. Dr. Barber believes in what he calls fusion politics. First of all, that just sounds cool, right? So obviously that's good, fusion politics, like fusion. So it's kind of like jazz, that jazz is cool, so therefore... Just kind of makes sense. But the idea behind fusion politics is that you bring together people who are on the right and on the left, people who vote for different parties typically, bring them together to talk about shared values. What is it that we can work together on? What do we have in common? And that's really what he's done. He's built an incredible movement of uh, evangelicals, Baptists, rabbis, Muslims, uh, secular and humanist folks, and I was so pleased at the, he spoke at the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly this past June and gave a special shout out to humanists as part of his speech, um, which was very, it got quite a reaction, a positive reaction there, as you can imagine. So he's brought together people that don't usually sit down at the table with each other. In fact, that might imagine that there isn't a table that they would be able to sit at together. And he's brought them together for what he believes is the third reconstruction, a new movement, a new moment, a turning of the world. I think for many of us over the last months and couple of years, as we have seen more and more clearly, particularly those of us who identify as white, have seen more clearly the injustices in our society, have been unable to look away anymore. The idea of being ready for a third reconstruction, being ready for a world-turning moment, it holds a great deal of hope a great deal of possibility. After, um, after this election next Sunday, we're going to have sort of part two of this platform about our ability to talk with people who are different than we are, about where we go from here, how we stay connected to each other. And I think that's really at the heart of the fusion politics movement. It's been tricky sometimes for humanists especially to be in coalitions. Some of you remember when we started working with the Washington Interfaith Network, um, which at the time wasn't really the Washington Interfaith Network, it was pretty much more the Washington like, Christian Church Network, and uh, how much we struggled as a community to figure out whether we would have a place in that network, whether we would be able to work with them. And so we did some of the back work to figure out, you know, could we get a synagogue to join at the same time, which we did, and in fact now there's a couple of synagogues and a mosque and some neighborhood associations, and it's starting to feel more like us, but some of the work we did was also on ourselves. How could we be part of a community that was going to feel different, where we would not agree on all the same issues, where we wouldn't be able to even take on some of the issues that are important to our community? Dr. Barber said recently at the revival in D.C., and I, I just loved this, he was talking about coalitions, and, um, and he said, if your coalition is comfortable, it's too small. If your coalition is comfortable, it's too small. 
for those of us who have a, a sense of wanting to be sort of um, comfortable and fully ourselves all the time, I think the idea of being able to be in a coalition where we're fully ourselves but not always comfortable and what that means, what power it can bring to organizing in this country, those were important words for me. I repeat them to myself sometimes when I, uh, when I sit and listen to prayers that aren't mine <laughs> or across the table from people whom I know I disagree with on one thing or another, perhaps things I hold dear. If my coalition is comfortable, it's too small. Another part of Barber's work of the Moral Declaration is the focus on the stories of impacted people. So the idea that coming up with what we need to do as a country, coming up with our moral compass, is not about policymakers somewhere figuring out all the answers, but that it starts with the stories of people who are impacted by the injustice in our country, people who are impacted by the inequality. So every time there's a revival or a day of action or a moral Monday, You'll see the preachers get up and talk, you'll hear singing, but you'll also hear stories from people who have themselves experiences around that inequality and injustice. I think the key for us here, there, is to realize that these are not other people's stories, they are our stories our stories here in this community. Sometimes we have a sense of ourselves as, you know, sort of a, a privileged, educated community that works for um, justice for other folks who experience oppression, but that that's not who we are. We're the privileged ones who are standing in solidarity. But the reality is that we have those stories among our community as well. I share with you, with her permission, Nancy Marucci's story. She actually gave me not just permission, but said she hoped she could share this with as many people as possible. Before the Affordable Care Act, she wrote, I lost my life savings, my retirement, and all the equity in my house, and my spouse from a catastrophic illness, and my life will never be the same again. After the Affordable Care Act, I had an $80,000 surgery last year that cost me $3,000. And I was immediately transferred to Medicaid the entire time I've been off work recovering because my state was smart enough to take, the, she says, the damn Medicaid option. <laughs> Please include in the list of things I lost my carefully built lifelong stellar credit rating, probably my house, not to mention my body and my soul. Nancy, as many of you know, is a member of WES. These are our stories. Nancy has had a particularly difficult experience with her health and the way that lack of health care drains your finances, but many of us have had experiences like this. In this room, I imagine are people who have needed health insurance and haven't been able to afford it, or people who have had crummy health insurance that didn't cover enough. Raise your hand if you have had student debt in your life. Yeah. If you have ever been priced out of a place to live. Right? Yeah, because it's DC. 
If you have a family member or a friend who has been incarcerated, if you have been denied access to equal rights because of your gender identity or sexual orientation, these are our stories, not someone else's, not another community out there elsewhere. They are our stories, and those stories are at the heart of the moral declaration. Those stories are at the heart of the values that we work for. So the election, it is still coming up on Tuesday, they tell me. This election has given us so much of what we don't want, you know. <laughs> so much, um, oh, vulgarity and uh, competition and... I went to a clergy workshop the other day where um, Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker presented, and she talked about um, morality and, um, and, and sort of the, the idea, the sort of old idea of um, onward progress for the good, you know, sort of that, that hard arrow, she called it, um, of justice, where, you know, the past was terrible and today is really not great, but in the future, in some other future, and depending on your theological orientation, that's truly some other future, or another future here and now, the sort of social gospel future that we're working for is going to be good. And she pointed out how, um, how the flaws with that model, that there, there's beauty in that, right, that, that, you're, that you're moving towards something better. But the flaws in the model that says there's nothing in the past or present that's good. Instead, she encouraged us to think about history as a kind of spiral. We talked about spirals with personal transformation and healing last month in our theme of healing. And she encouraged us to think about spirals in history and the way that we learn and get better over time that there is good in the present, and in fact, that our work for the future comes not from our rejection of the past and everything that was bad, but instead our affirmation of what is good and right in the now. And so during this season, I have been looking for what is good and right in the now. This past week, there was a call put out for clergy to join the tribes gathered at Standing Rock. And... Um, you know, a funny thing, this doesn't quite fit with my world view, but 524 years ago was the um, doctrine of discovery, the Catholic Church doctrine, which allowed um, oppression of Native peoples um, all over the world. Um, 524 clergy answered the call. <laughs> Life's funny. 524 clergy, they were hoping for 100. And 524 clergy came from all over the country and actually all over the world. And they joined people who have been gathering already from all over the country and all over the world. Tribes that have not worked together before coming together to stand. And there is something in that, in the midst of the sadness in that place, in the midst of the terror of rubber bullets, there is something so deeply powerful about the gathering, the solidarity that has been shown at Standing Rock. And it makes me think 
at this moment of national anxiety about what it means to believe in ourselves, to believe in America. I return time and again to the Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again. You all, if you are members here, know I return to it again and again because I make you listen to it really rather frequently. <laughs> Don't come on July 4th because you'll just hear this poem. It's a beautiful poem. I encourage you to read the whole thing. It starts out, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. The thing I love about this poem is that despite the way it looks, the hard reality in the face, it also holds on to the dream and the possibility. Oh yes, Hughes writes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. What does it mean to believe in ourselves in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of an electoral season that has been at best challenging, at worst disheartening and dispiriting? I saw a piece on voting recently, which I, I really liked. I like the ones that are just exhortations to vote as well. And I especially like the ones that are reminders that down-ballot matters, right? You know, that are exhortations to vote in your local school board elections and figure out who the candidates are and uh, to vote for local ordinances that they matter. But I liked this one, too. This was from Mariame Kaba, who was identified in the post as a freedom fighter who taught us how to fight. Kaba wrote this. Voting will not uproot oppression. Only social movements can do that. Voting is harm reduction. Voting is one tool in a larger toolkit to engage politically. And being an engaged political person is a good thing. It reminded me that this election and any election has limited power. Right now, at this moment, it feels enormous, doesn't it? That what happens on Tuesday may be the most important thing. But in reality, the story of America and America's progress and challenge and vision isn't just a story told by elected leaders. It's also a story of resistance movements, of protest movements, of populist movements. It's a story of school boards and teachers and communities. It's a story of fusion politics. There is not a candidate out there that supports all the hopes that are part of the moral declaration or of my own progressive and radical values. There never has been. I've not been able to fill that bubble in yet for someone who thinks everything I do. And even if there were, they wouldn't be able to magically make those things happen once they got in office. That's our job. That's our work. In the next week, something historic will happen. We don't know yet what. And it will feel that everything in our country has changed. And on the one hand, that will be true. And on the other hand, it will not be 
true at all, nothing will have changed. We will still be people trying to figure out how to do this thing called America. How to let America be America again, as Langston Hughes put it. Regardless of what happens in this election, the work is ultimately ours. It is our work to form coalitions, to, pre to press for our values, to work with whatever candidate is elected to make the best future possible. That's what I look for when I think about candidates. I look for the candidate that I think will create the conditions where I can do the activism most successfully. But no matter who is in any of those offices, our work remains the same. So I'd like to invite you at Reverend Dr. William Barber's request to join in a litany that was created from the Moral Declaration. Susan's going to help me to, um, to share that. I'm gonna put the podium back on, Kristen, if that's okay. And I want you to keep in mind a version of Dr. Barber's word about coalitions. If the litany is too comfortable, it's too small. I invite you now to join your part is people. You're the people. We the people, right? And Susan and I will share the leader parts. We have heard the prophet's call to repair the breach, and we know our Constitution's goal of a more perfect union. We affirm the prophets and proclaim, doomed to you who legislate evil, who make laws that make misery for the poor, that rob my destitute people of dignity, exploiting defenseless widows, taking advantage of homeless children. We uphold dignity and respect for all from the Quran. The believers, both men and women, are responsible for one another. All enjoin the doing of what is right and forbid the doing of what is wrong. We believe this to be true. All pe people have inherent rights and no one can take them away. Our governments derives from us, the people. The 
We believe in the values of democracy, and we were taught so we cannot accept our democracy's feeble state. Cannot accept demagoguery and fear-mongering that demonize and divide. We cannot accept wages that don't provide for a decent life or the suppression of workers' rights to organize and bargain collectively. We cannot accept that 29 million Americans don't have health insurance, including more than 4 million denied Medicaid expansion by their state. We cannot accept that one in three black men born today can expect to spend time in prison, nor that our country holds one quarter of the world's prisoners, but only about one twentieth its population. Cannot accept attacks on our neighbors, immigrants, religious minorities, people of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer folks, the disabled, or the poor. We are here to summon the better angels of our nature and press together toward higher ground. King Jr. said something along the lines of, it's up to the preachers to say that justice must roll down like waters. It's up to the politicians to figure out the plumbing. <laughs> In the coming days, we have an opportunity as a country to choose among politicians, to choose who we think will figure out the plumbing best, and to choose that in many different elections and roles. But it is our role today and every day, regardless of those politicians, regardless of what party we support or what candidate we support or what party system we plan to dismantle or what votes we do and don't make, our job every day is to keep proclaiming that justice must roll down. And sometimes to sing that from the rooftops. The chorus is going to help us with that this morning. We are going to help each other with it all the time. <laughs> 